I don't know how many of you like to go out for a coffee. Last week when I was in the Friends International Cafe in Colchester, uh, my first conversation was with a guy on my right, uh, and he was from Hong Kong. Uh, the next conversation I had was with a guy from Japan. Uh, he was studying insurance, would you believe? And I thought this is probably going to be a dull guy. Sorry for anyone who's insurance here. Uh, but that wasn't the case at all. He was actually quite interesting, but slightly bizarre in that he was writing a book. Uh, and to me, it seemed to be quite an odd book that he was trying to set out on. I talked to a guy from Italy, uh, a young man who's been here to study and has stayed I talked to a woman from Kazakhstan. Uh, She has been over here to actually help her sister who's studying. I talked to a Chinese woman who now lives in Colchester and her particular role, supported by the Chinese community and the Chinese church, is to reach out to Chinese. Uh, We heard from Alice earlier on. Uh, And the statistics for China are extraordinary. There are many more Christians in China today than there are people in the UK. And the church is growing really rapidly. And things are opening up extraordinarily. All of that in less than an hour. How does that relate to us? Well, our workplaces are increasingly multi-ethnic, aren't they? Our schools are increasingly multi-ethnic and multicultural. Sam came home from school the other day and said, Dad, in biology, the guy sits next to me is a Muslim. Brilliant. The world we live in is a globalized world. It's a challenging world. It's a world full of opportunity. We Each of us, if we choose to, can meet lots of people in Ipswich from all over God's world. Friends International staff in the last year met people from 83% of the world's countries. 83% of the world's countries. They're all here in the UK in one form or another. So, given this new globalization, the right question to ask is, what, what does this mean for me as a Christian? How do I respond to this new situation? What's my place in God's global mission? Let's very quickly remind ourselves of God's big picture. Because I think we can only understand our place if we just remind ourselves of the whole. And so we're going to do a Bible overview in about uh, a minute. God creates everything. We We believe in a creator God who created the heavens and the earth, the whole thing. And he created us at the pinnacle of that earthly creation with a desire to relate to us. He wanted from the outset to walk with us. So in the garden, there Adam and Eve, they walked together with God. But what does man do almost immediately? God gives a very brief framework for man to live by and man says stuff you god i actually think i can do this my own way i don't need your advice i think i can do it better that's essentially what happens isn't it in the story of adam and eve is that your story 
It's my story. I think it's all of our stories, isn't it? We choose to run our lives in a way that we think is best, and we exclude God from the equation. But God institutes a rescue plan. That's what the Bible story is about. It's God's rescue plan so that he can relate to his people. And so we we hear about the first part of that uh, rescue plan in the Old Testament, and then we hear more in detail and the decisive moment of Jesus in the New Testament. Now, very early on in the Bible narrative, God chooses a really ordinary man. And he says something extraordinary about this very ordinary man. Let's just read that verse from Genesis. I will make you into a great nation, God says to Abraham, and bless you. I will make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, just put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Abraham, fairly simple guy, uh, comes from Ur of Chaldees, uh, nomadic. When God says that to you, how would you feel? That you're the guy who's been chosen and everybody on earth will be blessed by you. Well, you're going to sit there and think, no way, God, I don't actually understand that for a start. How can that possibly be? But God says he's going to bless the nations through this this man. So God chooses a man. God then builds a nation and God gives that nation a law code, the Ten Commandments. He then gives the nation a land. And then he gives them a king. They'd requested a king, actually. It wasn't what God wanted for them, but they said, no, we want what everybody else has got. We want a king. So now we come into this passage in 1 Kings 8. It's a settled period in Israel's life. The nomadic period, the wandering is over in the desert. They're no longer captive in Egypt. They're now on their third king. They've had Saul. They've had David. It's now King Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba. And in 1 Kings 6, Solomon begins to build the temple. David had wanted to build it. God had said, no, David, you're not going to build the temple. That's something that your son will do. You see, ever since the Exodus, God's people had had visible reminders of his presence with them. So there was a pillar of fire that led the people. There was manna from heaven that fed the people. There was the Ark of the Covenant where the tablets, the Ten Commandments were written on, were put and which traveled with the people. And then there was the tabernacle, the tent that God gave very clear instructions for that contained the Holy of Holies, the the presence, the dwelling presence of God with his people. That became the center of Israel's worship. 
It was a focal point. It was really, really important to them. Now, the tabernacle days are over because a temple, a permanent house for God, a permanent place of dwelling for God is to be built, and Solomon has started that building. You see, it was a crucial place in Israel's worship because it was where the offerings were brought. It was where sacrifices were made. It was where once a year and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest went behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and offered a blood sacrifice. Now that picture is so important for us, isn't it? Because we, we can read so much into it. That moment of opening the, the curtain and going into the Holy of Holies and offering a blood sacrifice for sin so that the high priest could be forgiven and so that the people could be forgiven. So the passage we read was Solomon's prayer of dedication. Prayer of dedication for this new temple that he built. And we're going to look at the ways in which the temple was a signpost. But at the beginning of this prayer, there's this interesting phrase, as for the foreigner. As for the foreigner. Now, it could be a Daily Mail headline, couldn't it? And we probably know what would come next. It wouldn't be good. And Israel's history, bloody warfare, encounters with lots of people groups around them, which were violent, we might think that as for the foreigner might be followed by something negative. But not at all. As for the foreigner, who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards the temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever... Let's underline that. Do whatever the foreigner asks. Let's note, first of all, that there's an element of fulfillment of that promise made to Abraham, isn't there? The nations are being blessed through Abraham. It assumes people will come. Uh, God's people will have traveled uh, on business Uh, they would have been into relations with uh, the countries around, and they would have talked God up. And the suggestion is, because they've talked God up, because they've shared about their relationship with God and God's relationship with them, people will come to the temple. If you testify to a miracle-working God, why wouldn't people come? This God led us with a pillar of fire. This God fed us in the wilderness miraculously. We don't understand still where that food came from. If you tell stories about an extraordinary God's interventions in your life, people want to know more, don't they? And people were drawn to the temple. You know, there's lots of students that we would meet uh, in across the nation from Friends International staff stories that would tell you 
that people arrive in this country from all parts of the world wanting to know about God. They get here wanting to know. They've met somebody back home who said, you must go and meet Christians when you get to England because they're the people who love you, they're the people who care for you. Go to a church because that's a great community to get involved in. There are numerous stories that I could tell you where that has happened. Because the life we live and the community that we have are attractive. I think we sometimes forget that. We forget that a place in which God is present, where God's people interact together, where God is worshipped, is extraordinarily attractive. Extraordinarily attractive. Sometimes we might look at each other and think, my goodness, what a hodgepodge. But actually, God's at work in this community, making us attractive for his glory. So at the heart of Solomon's prayer, we've got this this extraordinary request for the foreigner. When he comes to pray, answer the prayer, God. Answer the prayer. Whatever he asks, answer the prayer. Essentially, what Solomon is saying is, God, prove yourself. If they come, prove yourself. Prove yourself to those who are not Jews, those who are outside the covenant, and God willingly answered the prayers of unbelievers. That's good, isn't it? That's good for me. That's good for you, because before you were a Christian, you cried out, didn't you? And God answered your prayer. Each one of us cried out and God answered our prayer and we prayed that prayer as unbelievers. Many of you will know stories of of Muslims who've cried out to God and God has answered their prayer in dreams. Our God is a God who intervenes extraordinarily in the lives of people by answering their cries and their prayers because he's a covenant God and Because he's a God whose desire is to reach the nations. From the beginning, his desire is to reach the nations. But the temple was a signpost in another sense as well. Because the worship that took place there, the annual sacrifice for sins, was symbolic. And we've intimated that already. It was symbolic of that future sacrifice of Jesus when the pure and the sinless one took my punishment and took your punishment. We're a cleansed people. We're a people who can stand before the holy God knowing that we have been purified. We can come to our God and ask for forgiveness and absolutely nothing can then get in the way of that relationship. What a joy to be a cleansed people. And at the moment that Christ died, something extraordinary happened, the scripture tells us. That curtain that the high priest had to go past into the Holy of Holies was ripped in two. 
symbolic of an extraordinary change. The sacrificial system was dead. It was no longer necessarily because there had been a, a perfect, sufficient, one-time sacrifice. No sacrifices need to happen anymore. See, the system, the whole sacrificial system, had always been a signpost forward to Jesus. So, what does that mean in terms of our thinking about world mission? In terms of thinking about how I relate to the world? So in the Old Testament, the model of mission was, let's use an engineering term, or a scientific term, centripetal. People were drawn from the outside in to the centre. I don't know what your house is like, uh, where the dust lurks. Uh, our house uh, can at times be quite dusty. Uh, it usually gets a good clean when Linda's mum is coming. Uh, but otherwise, dust lurks. If you take your hoover into the dustiest places and put it down, there's a bit of a circle that emerges in the dust because it's all been sucked up into the hose. Essentially, that was what was happening. People were being drawn to the center, and at the center, they encountered God. Now, there were some notable exceptions to that in the Old Testament. We've got Jonah. Uh, Jonah, who uh, God tells, go to Nineveh, uh, go and preach repentance there, and Jonah says, actually, can't be bothered, God. Actually, I'm going this way. Uh, God has his way, doesn't he? Sends a big fish. Jonah gets put back on track. Um, But it's still a reluctant preaching to a lost people. And I heard it argued recently, and I thought it was quite compelling, that the book of Jonah is there to remind the people of Israel, at least in part, that their commission goes way beyond the borders of their nation. They were called to be a blessing to the nations. And Jonah's there to remind us or to remind them of that. So in the Old Testament, we've got centripetal mission, pulling into the center. Now, we come to the New Testament, it's all change. It's all change because of Jesus. Really familiar words in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of... All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We're now in the washing machine on the spin cycle. We're being pushed out from the center to the edges. We're a sent people. Our mission's not temple-based. It's out in our neighborhood, in our town, in our nation, in our world. In the Old Testament, as we've said, people's worship focused on the temple and on obeying God's law. As Christians, as New Testament people, the command is to go. I was at a conference for our new 
REACH volunteers recently. Our REACH volunteers are people who've just graduated from university uh, and seek to serve with us for a year or two. Uh, And there I met John. John is in his early 20s, and he knows without a shadow of a doubt that God has called him to serve in the Arab world. And he's known that for a while. Uh, He's already advanced in learning Arabic. Uh, He's already spent uh, a lot of time in countries in the Middle East. He knows that he's got to go to those countries uh, with what, what agencies call creative access. He'll have to go with a job. He can't go as a Christian. And he knows he's going there to support the church, support maybe individual Christians as they struggle to live the life of faith in what are often really hostile environments. It was just a real treat to sit with Fred over the meal table and see the way that God has led this young man. Extraordinary. Because he's going to go to a tough place to teach others about Jesus. But that's not me, you say. That's not what I'm called to. Well, we'll come to that. But before we go any further, I want to to pause and, and ask a couple of questions. First question is, what hasn't changed between the Old Testament system and today? What hasn't changed? And I'm going to be very brief on this. God's the same. That hasn't changed. God is exactly the same. But secondly, God's promise to Abraham remains that all nations will be blessed. So God's the same. God's promise to Abraham remains the same. Just going to go on a slight detail for a minute because what's happening in the world for me is an incredible confirmation of the truth of Scripture and the truth of what God has told us in the promise to Abraham. God says all those years ago, as we said, to this fellow, this nomad, I'm going to bless the nations through you. Now that looked like a really silly thing for God to say, if I can be frank. Didn't it? All those years ago, it's there planted in the scriptures for us all to read. What's happening today? It's coming true. It's been coming true for years. The God of the scriptures, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, is reaching the nations. There's people from all over the world who love Jesus. It gives me huge confidence in my Bible Because the story is coming true, day by day. What has changed? What has changed? We said there's been a a once and for all sacrifice. People no longer need to travel to a temple. There's no special place to go. There's no one physical place where sacrifices are offered. Everyone wherever they are in the world, has equal access to the living God. But they have to be told. So, I'm sent. So, you're sent. What does that sending look like? Well, it might be I'm sent to my workplace. 
I look back to my years in, in BT and I would say they were probably some of the most fruitful years evangelistically in my life. You can be sent to your workplace, sent to your school. You can fulfill this commission by wel- welcoming immigrants, international students, by not being scared of your Muslim neighbor and making friends. You can be cyber sent now. Anybody cyber sent? <laughs> Lots of people answer questions online that Muslims might be asking, that Chinese might be asking. There's people who sit in the comfort of their own room and evangelize the world. Could you be cyber sent? Do you feel adequate for God's mission? No. No. Do you know, I'm leading an organization that reaches out to postgraduates and to undergraduates, and I didn't even go to university. I went to Bible college. I feel at times utterly inadequate for what I've been called to. But that doesn't worry God. Not in the slightest. Because he's in the business of taking people who are inadequate and working through them. This verse in 1 Corinthians 3 sort of nails it. Don't you know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? You see, God's dwelling place on earth has changed. It's no longer in a building. It's in a people. It's in you and me. God has chosen to dwell within us by his spirit. Which is extraordinary, isn't it? We talked the other day about the Trinity. So if I'm saying the Holy Spirit dwells within me, I'm actually saying that that God, in his fullness, the Holy Spirit, fully God, lives in me and works through me. So I'm a signpost now. Because I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit, I'm a signpost. See, those of us who have God's Spirit actively at work in us, we live an attractive life. People are drawn to us. People are drawn to us and they might say, wow, that life looks different. And it's not because I'm a fantastic personality. Let me tell you, I'm not. It's not because you're absolutely brilliant or hugely attractive, although I can see that you are. It's because God dwells in you. That's the attractive bit. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. That's the bit that people are drawn to. Just as people were drawn to the temple because it was where God dwelt, so people are drawn to us because it's where God dwells. How many of you were first captivated by Jesus in somebody else when you became a Christian? I guess for those of us who became Christians as adults or as older young people, that's probably the story. You were captivated by the life of Jesus in somebody else. It has extraordinary power. 
And you see, whilst our lives may be a magnet, and please, Lord, let that be, our words must tell the story. Because it's not about us. We are a signpost. So our story has to point to Jesus. Our story has to point to Jesus. We'll let people down. I know I will. If they look at me, there'll be a moment when they say, that wasn't consistent with what you teach or preach or say. That's why I've got to point them to Jesus. And away from me. I'm simply a signpost. So my final question. Have you asked God to send you recently? We've been thinking a lot, haven't we, about missional communities. And there's been some fabulous things happening. We have so much to celebrate. But we're called to the ends of the earth as well. And I want just to put the question to you. Have you given God the opportunity to send you to the ends of the earth on his behalf? He might not send you anywhere other than the end of your street. And that's absolutely good and okay. But you have to know that he sent you to the end of your street. Just as you have to know whether he's sending you to the ends of the world. I talked to a guy a while ago called Hosokawa from Japan. Japan, one of the most unchurched countries in the world. When somebody becomes a Christian in Japan, there's a big party, because it doesn't happen very often. Hosokawa becomes a Christian when he's studying as an international student in the UK. So your immediate thought is, brilliant, that builds the church in Japan. Hosokawa was called to go to China. Just seems totally counterintuitive. But God had a calling on his life. And he knew that he had to go somewhere other than the obvious place. So maybe for us, we've got to ask the question sometimes. Are we called to go somewhere other than the obvious place? Might it be that there's somebody here who God is calling to an extraordinary place, to a quiet work somewhere in the Middle East, to a quiet work somewhere in the backwaters of Japan? We know the answer to that question might be yes, because our God is a God whose heart is for the nations.